Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Human Rights. This is Andrew Jaya. Today I'll be speaking with historian Lawrence Whitner, a now retired professor at the State University of New York in Albany, about his memoir, Working for Peace and Justice, Memoirs of an Activist Intellectual. As its title suggests, Whitner's book is a retrospective of a life and career that has straddled between academia and social engagement. While many scholars adopt a detached perspective, Whitner has strived to integrate his research with action. He has worked at seemingly every scale, on issues ranging from U.S. foreign policy to local labor relations. He has numerous noteworthy publications to his credit, including a three-volume study of the nuclear disarmament movement, entitled The Struggle Against the Bomb. Whitner's career as a public intellectual has carried him around the globe, making him a first-hand student of and frequent participant in events of historical importance. His memoir tells that story and is available through the University of Tennessee Press. This is Andrew Jaya, and I'm speaking with uh, Professor Lawrence Whitner, uh, who's written a new memoir called Working for Peace and Justice, Memoirs of an Activist Intellectual. Um, now, to, to begin our, our, our discussion today, um, I wanted to, to sort of start off with a moment that um, you present about two-thirds of the way through your your book. In fact, you've had a very conventionally successful career in one respect. Um, you've uh, published extensively and importantly. You've studied uh, at, a, at fantastic universities. Um, and yet at the same time, there's this sort of unconventional aspect of your uh, career as well, and that is your, your political activism. And there's this event in, in Albany that you sort of seize on, um, in which uh, you participated in a demonstration, you were arrested. Uh, a colleague of yours remarked on this, and you said, you know, some people... Uh, some people merely watch events and others participate in them. And I thought that this was a very remarkable thing for a professor of history uh, to say. Uh, Well, I think it reflected uh, my view that uh, uh, historians are are very good at describing the world. uh, And uh, I think I did that fairly well. But it's also true that uh, historians as intellectuals sometimes want to change that world or at least have some role in it. That is, they want to uh, to not only uh, describe history, uh, but to make history. And uh, throughout my uh, career, I, I uh, try to do both. Uh, I try to uh, both uh, describe some of the exciting events of, of, of my time, whether those were the, uh, the uh, struggles for racial justice or the uh, peace movement um, or other uh, dramatic campaigns, uh, but at the at, at the same time to uh, participate in them because I believed in in uh, social justice and in peace and and more generally uh, creating a better world. Uh, so I somehow managed to uh, to do both. And this, I think, this aspect or this sort of dual aspect of your of your career sort of first crystallized when you were an undergraduate student at, at the university at Columbia University rather. Um, where you sort of you, you were both intellectually and politically awakened at the same time. 
Uh, yes, I, I come from a, uh, a mildly uh, liberal family, but there was no uh, political activism in, involved uh, beyond voting uh, every few years. Uh, so I'd never, and my family had never been involved in any 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 kind of uh, social justice or uh, peace movement. Um, nonetheless, um, I was um, very struck by the uh, Columbia College core courses I was taking, uh, the, the courses that dealt with the history of Western civilization and uh, in Western thought, um, with intellectual history and the um, uh, humanities courses and, and so on. And I, I began to understand that um, the knowledge that was being uh, transmitted to me by my teachers um, had been hard won, um, that there had been a long uh, struggle to uh, pull humanity out of the, uh, the muck of the, uh, the grim past um, uh, through the use of knowledge and reason and intellectual life. And I, I saw a, a connection uh, between uh, intellectual life, uh, reason on, on the one hand, and uh, humanity's progress on the other. In short, I, I um, came out of that with a rather uh, conventional enlightenment view of the world, that, that through, through knowledge and um, uh, reason, uh, a better world could be uh, born, um, and I, uh, I was determined to to uh, play my part, however small a part that might be, uh, in in uh, bringing knowledge to bear on solving social problems. And I think that really that sort of captures your uh, sort of political sensibilities. You're in fact very pragmatic, or you see yourself as very pragmatic. Um, you sort of eschew extremism uh, in both directions. Right. Uh, I'm, I'm not especially ideological, uh, despite that, that uh, statement I made earlier uh, about changing the world. Uh, I was never really drawn into fantasies of revolution, uh, or for that matter, into uh, uh, militarist fantasies or uh, fantasies of the, the invisible hand of, of, of Adam Smith, uh, economics, and, and so on. Uh, I believe the world could be changed, that, that those changes uh, could be accomplished through um, the, the efforts of, of ordinary people, uh, and uh, particularly with intellectuals, uh, providing ordinary people um, uh, with the knowledge they could use to, to uh, improve um, their society and their world. Now, while, while an undergraduate at, at Columbia, you also uh, made a very important uh, friendship that I think carried you into some of your early uh, political activity, and I was wondering if you could talk a bit about that. Well, uh, I made all kinds of new friends there. Uh, it was an, a very uh, stimulating environment. There were all these um, uh, bright uh, people uh, brought together in, in small classes for the most part. Uh, a particular friend of mine was my... Uh, freshman uh, roommate uh, Mike Weinberg, and we we had a fine time together, both both socially and ultimately uh, politically. Uh, we both helped to form the 
uh, Columbia College chapter of the Congress of Racial Equality, and we were also uh, both involved in in taking part in uh, in peace movement demonstrations, uh, particularly against nuclear testing, which was a hot issue in the early 1960s, uh, as was uh, civil rights, of course. Uh, and, I, and following your time at Columbia, you and Mike sort of swept up in the in the spirit of the the time. I think went on this this sort of rambling road trip uh, that was also also, from what I understand, quite formative. Yes. Well, um, uh, we'd both read uh, Jack Kerouac's novel On the Road, and like many young people at the time, we were um, fascinated by it and by the big poets and and so on. Um, So we decided sometime during our college years that we were going to go on the road, too, uh, in our case, after graduation. Uh, And so we did so. We we drove 13,000 miles around the country, uh, did all all sorts of things from... um, uh, catching uh, fish uh, in, in, in the uh, Pacific to um, uh, doing migrant labor in the Northwest. And uh, unlike many other people, uh, we also uh, put in some time as uh, civil rights workers in the, in the South um, that summer, in the, in the summer of 1962, uh, in both Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and in Jackson, Mississippi. And some of the experiences, I guess we can come back uh, and and talk about this a bit later, but some of those experiences you had in the South uh, perhaps foretold um, experiences you had later as as a young professor. Um, Could you maybe draw out, is there a particular event that you recall from that time in the South when you were there uh, following your time at Columbia uh, as an undergraduate that that you thought tied in with your, your experience later as a young professor? Well, uh, to go back a bit, um, my my father worked for a, a uh, New York State agency, which was the first uh, civil rights bureau uh, since the Reconstruction period, uh, called the New York State Commission uh, Against Discrimination. Uh, it's now the New York State uh, Division of Human Rights, um, and um, that that agency uh, uh, was based on a, a, a law that had been passed during the late 1940s that uh, prohibited um, discrimination on the basis of, of, of race, religion, and national origin in employment. Uh, so I was sensitized during my youth to, um, to social um, and racial uh, and religious discrimination. Um, and um, uh, so it wasn't surprising that, that during college I would be caught up in the uh, civil rights movement. Um, uh, but during college, I guess during my uh, senior year, when we were in, involved in the uh, Columbia Corps chapter, a Corps field secretary named uh, Ronnie Moore um, uh, had come up uh, to visit uh, civil rights supporters in the North. Um, and Ronnie told us about the uh, struggle in the, in the South, uh, particularly in Baton Rouge, uh, where he and uh, three other students had been expelled from Southern University, uh, a, a traditionally African-American uh, college. Um, for uh, doing voter registration work, or at least trying to do it. Obviously, the authorities were blocking it at, at every turn. And um, they were arrested under an old anti-syndicalist law that had been passed against the IWW uh, of, uh, during the early uh, 20th century when it was organizing timber workers uh, in Louisiana. 
and it provided for for a a uh, hefty fine and a hefty uh, prison term and, and uh, hard labor uh, for uh, criminal anarchy, which was what the authorities had uh, arrested these uh, voter registration uh, civil rights workers for. So uh, um, uh, when Ronnie was up in the north, he asked us, um, well, we, we uh, came up to him after his talk and we told him, Ronnie, you're doing a great job. If there's any way we can help out, uh, please let us know. And he said, well, uh, what are you uh, uh, boys doing this summer? So we said, well, we're going on the road, as a matter of fact. And we explained uh, what that meant. And he said, well, is there any chance you might come through Baton Rouge? And we said, uh, sure, we could arrange that. Uh, and so we did. Uh, we got there in late July. And we um, um, uh, helped out in that in that um, uh, small city, and then we um, uh, drove on north to uh, Jackson, where we did voter registration work out of the local uh, Freedom House. We also attended a a core SNCC uh, uh, field secretaries meeting that was held at the Freedom House there in in Jackson. Um, on the way there, though, uh, on, on the uh, trip between uh, Baton Rouge and, uh, and Jackson, um, uh, we nearly got ourselves killed. Uh, uh, we nearly uh, preceded Goodman, Cheney, and, and uh, Schwerner uh, in getting ourselves murdered uh, by local white racists. Uh, we had stopped at a, a gas station on the way. Uh, we, it was, a, of course, a very low-budget trip since we were on the road, uh, a la Jack Kerouac. And so um, uh, we had a, a quarrel with the gas station attendant whose who sign on, on the road indicated a uh, lower gas price than was on the gas pump, and he was uh, threatening to kill us and to uh, drag us out of the car and, and so on, and, and we, uh, we narrowly averted getting killed uh, there. Uh, but we did move on to Jackson. Um, uh, the the uh, voter registration work was, of course, done in, in St. Bailiwick, uh, as Medgar Evers was doing it uh, two years later when... Uh, or was it one year later? I guess one year later when he was murdered by, uh, by local racists uh, for doing the, the same thing uh, a few miles down the road. Now, after that experience when you were on the road uh, mm -hmm. and sort of engaging in, in some of your early political activism, um, you, you came back and you decided that you were going to, to apply to graduate school um, and from what I understand, you were, you were looking in you were looking in graduate school um, for a sort of balance between you know the the, the intellectual and the activist uh, um, sort of development or, or or path or progress that you've been making uh, up to that point, um, and that that led you ultimately to the University of Wisconsin. Yes, um, at at that time, uh, well, I I. Uh, I'd taken a course in which I'd read a book uh, by Merle Curdy, uh, taken a course during my uh, Columbia days. Uh, and Merle Curdy was, at, at the time, one of the most uh, distinguished um, uh, American historians. He was a former president of the American Historical Association, uh, a former president of the Organization of American Historians, uh, and the and the founder of the field of U.S. intellectual history and of U.S. social history, and as I later learned, he was also 
<clears throat> a, a founder uh, of the field of uh, peace history, the, the uh, study of uh, peace movements and uh, peace activism uh, in the United States. Uh, and <clears throat> and uh, studying with, uh, <clears throat> with uh, Curdy, I was struck again by the connection between uh, intellectual life, between doing uh, cutting-edge intellectual work on, on the one hand, and uh, uh, cutting-edge social change. Um, Curdy and I had some conversations uh, about the civil rights movement and peace movement and so on. And in fact, at, at one point, he, he even mentioned that since the late 1930s, there had been no uh, significant uh, scholarly works that had been done on the history of the U.S. peace movement. And so I, I picked up that um, that theme uh, when later I was a doctoral student at Columbia. I, I'd gone back to uh, Columbia University uh, for my doctoral work. Uh, and I picked up that theme, and I looked around, and I realized that in terms of my doctoral dissertation, uh, things were wide open for writing about the history of the U.S. peace movement since the 1930s. So I eventually um, uh, turned to that uh, dissertation topic. Uh, I wrote uh, my dissertation on that subject, and that uh, became my first book uh, entitled Rebels Against War. And you sort of, as a result of, of honing in on, on peace movements, uh, becoming a historian and a scholar of peace movements, um, you sort of, to track back to the, the story that we began the, the discussion with, um, you became a, a sort of observer of the very same sorts of movements that you were participating in at the same time. Yes, absolutely. And, and in fact, I, I, I found it very exciting uh, to be doing um, uh, uh, my dissertation work. I wasn't at, at all bored with it. Uh, I couldn't wait to get up in, in, in the morning, and I couldn't stop working at, at night since I, I, I felt I was doing really important work. I was outlining uh, for historians and for the general public um, uh, the history of this social movement that that by the mid and, and late 60s was out in the streets and was challenging the Vietnam War and more broadly the, the general direction of, of U.S. foreign policy. Um, sometimes I'd take a little break and I'd go off to a peace demonstration. Uh, at other times I was interviewing some of the leading uh, peace movement activists in, in the United States, uh, people ranging uh, from Norman Thomas to A.J. Musty to uh, David McReynolds and Dave Dellinger and others. And it was all very exciting and all part of a general blend of uh, intellectual activity and movement activity. You'll often hear in, in graduate schools that it's important for scholars to maintain a sort of dis dispassionate objectivity about the subject, uh, the subject matter of their study. Did you ever did you ever find that balance difficult? Um, not really. Um, frequently, the the um, people that I I soon met who were studying comparable things and and doing comparable things, blending intellectual life and and uh, peace movement work, um, uh, frequently we were uh, criticized uh, for not being objective. Um, and my response to the uh, critics and to those who have made that, that charge since that time is that 
um, there was no reason for us to be um, uh, inaccurate in our findings or uh, subjective. Uh, there was every reason for us to be objective because uh, we wanted the the uh, truth out. Uh, we wanted to to tell the the full story uh, of what had happened, uh, so it was better un- to to uh, better understand what had happened and to uh, transform the world. And you can't do that based on myths. You can do that based on knowledge. Um, uh, so, like the Enlightenment thinkers, who were my my heroes and uh, heroines, uh, I believed, and I think other uh, peace researchers believed, that by doing a good job as peace researchers, um, uh, we could better um, uh, train and uh, arm, if I can use that term, uh, the the, uh, peace movement and peace-minded people uh, to uh, secure uh, a more peaceful world. So I never saw a, a contradiction uh, between um, um, supporting a social movement and doing a good job uh, uh, studying it. Uh, just as I, I don't see any contradiction between being a good biologist and uh, studying the the AIDS uh, phenomenon and and trying to uh, to get rid of it. Obviously, uh, a good biologist wouldn't wouldn't falsify his or her findings, uh, and I certainly never falsified mine. So it goes back to this kernel, this idea that that essentially the, the way to solve social problems is to integrate knowledge with action. Absolutely, uh, I may in, in, in fact be um, uh, too much of a believer in the uh, the role of knowledge uh, in in uh, assisting uh, humanity in in uh, building a better world. Um, but uh, nonetheless, that's my belief, and I think uh, underpinning most education, uh, that belief is there as well. That is, uh, most college teachers and and, and uh, teachers in the lower grades as, as well, uh, I think, uh, don't just believe that education will help students get better jobs, but rather that education will help students lead better lives. Um, maybe that's a good segue to begin talking about your first academic appointment at the Hampton Institute in the South. Um, it's yeah. That from like, with the stories that you tell about that, it seems like it was a uh, it was sort of fraught with uh, sort of friction with the community and with uh, social importance as well. Yes. Well, um, uh, not surprisingly, I, I accepted my my first job at Hampton Institute, um, now Hampton University, a, a traditionally African-American college in the, in the South. Uh, and Hampton is located in, in Hampton, Virginia, which at, at that time, uh, when I taught there in 1967-68, was a uh, thoroughly segregated uh, community uh, dominated by white racism uh, and um, no particular respect or love for Hampton Institute, this this largely black institution in the in the um, town's midst, uh, I was actually turned down for housing on on racial grounds when I I, I got there. Um, my wife and I tried to rent a place, but as soon as I indicated that I was going to be teaching at Hampton Institute, uh, I suddenly 
we were told that the, um, the, the apartment we were trying to rent um, um, had been taken, and therefore um, uh, there was no chance of our moving in there. Uh, eventually, we did find housing, um, and we, we fit into the a community in, in, in rather odd ways. On the one hand, we were very, uh, very welcomed uh, as white faculty, uh, at, at Hampton Institute, since um, uh, black colleges needed all the help they could get, especially uh, from whites in their uh, beleaguered situation in, in the South. Uh, and uh, on the other hand, of, of course, we were uh, viewed as very strange ducks uh, or, or as uh, subversives uh, uh, by the local white society. And, and of course, 1967-68 was a hot time in, in terms of the racial justice struggle in the United States. Uh, the the um, Well, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was uh, assassinated uh, uh, during that year, and there were big demonstrations in in Hampton that I took part in, uh, mostly with with black students, uh, a, a handful of of whites and thousands of of black students marching uh, through downtown Hampton, uh, and also of course Martin Luther King Jr.'s Poor People's Campaign uh, prior to his death uh, came through Hampton, uh, Virginia. Um, and um, uh, um, friends and I uh, served as as marshals um, uh, when it it came through uh, the nearby city of Norfolk, uh, Virginia. Um, we were supposed to keep white racists back in, in case they attacked the line of march. Uh, as it turned out, they didn't do so. I, I was very glad of that. Uh, and um, uh, there were other ventures, too. Um, we, we ran a, a, a third-party campaign uh, for the Peace and, and uh, Freedom Party, which we got on the uh, Virginia ballot at the time we were um, planning to have a, a, a third-party ticket of Martin Luther King Jr. and Benjamin Spock uh, for uh, president and vice president, respectively. Um, but after uh, King's assassination, we uh, switched to the, um, the uh, black comedian, Dick Gregory, who was a sharp social uh, critic, uh, and Dr. Spock as our, our presidential, vice presidential ticket. And we were the only uh, southern state to, to field uh, that ticket that year. You also related this uh, story, or just a brief anecdote, about um, the effect you had on, on a particular colleague, that you encouraged this colleague uh, at the Hampton Institute to become more politically active, and this was actually an important moment in his in his life, it sounds like, uh, that it impressed his family, uh, that, that he had sort of transformed from someone who was sort of um, disengaged to someone who had become engaged. Yes, well, the this... The odd part about the Hampton uh, constituency was that uh, many of the senior faculty uh, were older African Americans, and while they they certainly uh, supported civil rights, um, living for years, sometimes for decades, sometimes having grown up in a uh, a, a segregationist uh, white supremacist culture. They had learned to be very cautious. Uh, they didn't often stick their necks out. Um, they wouldn't have survived long had they done so. On the other hand, there was a whole wave of 
new young white faculty um, like me who had just come in there uh, that that year or in the last couple of years, uh, and they were young uh, PhDs from Berkeley and Columbia and Harvard and Michigan and Wisconsin and so on, and they'd been in, involved in um, uh, more dramatic, more daring uh, struggles against the Vietnam War. Uh, they'd been involved in uh, sit-ins against racism and and so on, and they had come from outside, and now they were down in in, in the south, and, and and like me, they were um, bursting with, with with energy and 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 wanted to transform things. Um, so there was a little bit of tension there, not not total tension, but but the older black faculty were uh, uh, somewhat more cautious uh, than we were. In any case. Um, uh, what happened in the in the uh, instance uh, you mentioned was that one of the senior black faculty um, had really not been sticking his his neck out very far, um, but we en- encouraged him to uh, support King's uh, Poor People's March, and he became one of the organizers for the campus. Uh, um, uh, that is, some of the younger, more militant white faculty did so, and he agreed to do so, too, finally. Uh, and later on, uh, he thanked one of my my young uh, colleagues for uh, pushing him in that direction, uh, since when he told his mother, uh, his aging mother, uh, about this, uh, she, she was absolutely uh, delighted and, 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 and said to him that she always knew he would he would turn out this way. So uh, I guess we help to to inject uh, a little liveliness or or uh, perhaps more more gumption into some of the more uh, accommodating uh, black faculty. Although there were black faculty who were not as accommodating either, and who were in the the, um, the movement barricades at that time. But following. Following your time at the Hampton Institute, you, you ended up at a very, very different sort of uh, institution, uh, that being Vassar. Um, and there you, you continued to engage in your, in your sort of political activity um, and, again, found friction, but a different sort of friction than I think you found, uh, than you found at the Hampton Institute. Yes, um, Vassar was a very different sort of place. Uh, the, the tone was upper middle class to, to upper class. Uh, the faculty was, for the most part, pretty high bound, and uh, and of course the whole student body and faculty were overwhelmingly white uh, and relatively uh, privileged. Um, and 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 in fact, uh, for the first year or so, the the uh, student body was female. They only gradually uh, admitted males, and then and then uh, finally uh, sought to get uh, male attendance up to uh, roughly half of the the entering uh, freshman class. Um, so it, it was a, a different sort of experience. And on, on the one hand, Vassar seemed to be um, uh, not only more uh, genteel, uh, but more liberal and tolerant. But on the other, uh, by the late 60s and early 70s, um, many of, of the older faculty, and certainly the administration, were backlashing against the, the um, trends of social protest that, at the time. And so uh, the younger faculty, um, like me, uh, were um, uh, pushing it against that that uh, that stodginess and that elitism, and ultimately, um, uh, when we were um, 
engaging in the uh, moratorium campaigns, having having faculty uh, shut down their their classes in uh, protest against the the uh, Vietnam War, or when we we uh, supported the establishment um, of a uh, black studies program on the campus, uh, or other campaigns along those lines, um, the the more conservative faculty and administration cracked down on us, and they began firing the uh, dissident faculty uh, and ultimately purged a a, a substantial portion uh, of the dissidents, uh, including me. Yeah, in fact, when when you came up for for tenure, you found found your path blocked. Yes, yes. Uh, By that point, I had had published a a, a very uh, widely praised um, monograph, Rebels Against War, uh, an edited book, uh, a, a slew of scholarly articles. Um, my uh, teaching evaluations were very good. Uh, I had a lot of students, uh, but nonetheless, uh, the old guard faculty were determined to get rid of me uh, as a wave maker. Uh, and uh, uh, the the tenured faculty, who were the only ones who could who could vote on me. Um, um, uh, split the the uh, majority who were uh, conservatives all all voted against me, and the minority who were liberals voted for me, <laughs> and so I was uh, turned down for for tenure, and I uh, moved on um, uh, in later years to teaching under the Fulbright program, and also uh, finally to to teaching at uh, SUNY Albany, where I gradually rose to be a professor of history. Now, this time when you were teaching uh, under the Fulbright program, I thought uh, it sort of opened uh, another sort of uh, aspect to your career, which is this international dimension. Um, and you said that when you were in Japan, um, something that you found sort of uncomfortable or, or strange was that uh, you, were, you were sort of treated as almost a dignitary, while at the same time in the U.S. you felt sort of closed out um, from academic life. Um, and I wondered if you could talk about that that sort of feeling of displacement a bit. Well, uh, I I couldn't speak Japanese uh, for one thing beyond a few key phrases that I I learned for the occasion. Uh, I did know well I didn't know much uh, about Japanese history, although I did know a good deal about the U.S. occupation of Japan since I I studied uh, General Douglas MacArthur uh, as one of the the uh, scholarly foci of uh, my work. Um, but more than that, the the uh, Vietnam War was still raging, and I was often viewed uh, um, by many Japanese as a a symbol of the United States, and particularly of the United States government. And I was a a, a critic of that government, certainly when it came to the Vietnam War, uh, and more broadly as to U.S. foreign policy at, at that time. And therefore... Uh, it, it was an un- uncomfortable situation for me. Uh, <laughs> uh, on the other hand, um, uh, oh, so <laughs> uh, just to I- expand on that last point a, a bit. Um, 
some students would come up to me, recognizing me as a, a, a foreigner, a, a white Westerner there in in uh, Japan, and they would say to me, they were they were so glad the United States was in in, in Vietnam, uh, uh, fighting for for uh, freedom and, and so on, and I'd be forced to tell them, well, I'm not not for that that fight, and I didn't think it was a fight for freedom, um, and then. On the other hand, there'd be many, many Japanese students who were demonstrating against the, the Vietnam War and against the United States role in, in, in that war. Uh, there were times when I would um, come to campus uh, by subway and uh, walk to campus and start going onto the campus grounds, and I would have to walk through a gauntlet uh, of, of masked Japanese students uh, carrying big black and red flags on poles, and they were from uh, sectarian Marxist-Leninist groups, the revolutionary this and the, and the revolutionary workers that, and so on. Uh, and uh, at least um, superficially, they they were hostile to me, and I, and I was I was pretty clearly uh, a Westerner coming onto their campus. Um, what could happen to me? It, it wasn't quite clear. I wasn't quite sure what I should say or uh, try to say to them if I was suddenly attacked. But it, in, in fact, I was not. Uh, the the Japanese student groups were more uh, hostile to one another uh, than they were to Westerners. And I, I had a fine time there in, in uh, Japan. I even hooked up. Um, uh, not just with with anti-war Japanese, but with a group of Westerners called the uh, Committee of Concerned Asian Scholars, and we met with uh, with U.S. soldiers, uh, with uh, GIs from the Carrier Midway, uh, and uh, uh, talked to them in off-base uh, coffee houses, and uh, discussed the war and discussed the need for uh, changing U.S. foreign policy. Now, you said something which I think makes a good, leads us into a, another discussion about your political activities when you're back in the States. Once you had found a place at SUNY Albany, um, you became, again, as, as you were everywhere, engaged in, in political action and began to notice that you said that the Japanese students were sort of more hostile to one another than they were to outsiders. You also observed that many sort of issue issue-oriented groups in the States were sort of more wrapped up in their own infighting uh, than they were um, in sort of targeting the, the sort of common um, sources, the, the sources of, uh, uh, I, I guess, sort of targeting the, uh, the common problems that they all, that they all um, observed. Yeah, well, uh, unfortunately, in my view, um, that is one of the problems that, that uh, the left faces in the United States. And I, I don't just mean, um, you know, very small left groups, communist groups, socialist groups, and so on, but uh, broader groups uh, ranging uh, from women's groups to labor groups to uh, peace movement groups to uh, in- environmental groups. They, they tend to focus on their own uh, particular cause, uh, sometimes to the exclusion of other causes. Um, so single-issue politics can can uh, divide them. And, and of course, more than that, there are ideological differences. Certainly, uh, in the in the socialist and communist camps, not not only long, long-term hostilities between socialists and and communists, but also uh, even uh, within 
those those separate realms. Uh, there would be differences of opinion. Uh, a socialist, for example, um, uh, might back a third party, or they might back working inside the Democratic Party, uh, or they might be more anti-communist or less anti-communist or uh, a whole range of, of things uh, that can divide them. So often uh, the, the social change forces in, in the United States have been divided and remain divided. Uh, I often saw my role as trying to um, provide a more mainstream approach. Uh, I always liked the uh, the speeches and, and writings of the late Michael Harrington, um, who said um, that that if you really want uh, social social justice and peace, um, you should be on the left wing of the possible. And what he meant by that was that that rather than uh, go off with some some little uh, obscure uh, sectarian group, you should be in there with mainstream groups um, being a, a, a force uh, there that would uh, pull them uh, leftward, that would uh, give them that broader social consciousness they would need. Uh, so that I became in, involved in the labor movement, for example, at a time when many uh, leftists in the United States uh, had nothing to do with the labor movement. They, they viewed it as stodgy and uh, traditional and right-wing and backlashing and so on. Well, I, I viewed it uh, as a potential force for change if its consciousness of, of uh, class divisions could be heightened and if its understanding of the abuses of uh, capitalism uh, could be heightened. Um, and in terms of the peace movement, too, I didn't see that movement as a movement that should uh, be anti-American as, as such or, or, or assume that the only um, uh, militarism and the only crimes in, in the world were on the part of the United States. Um, as a historian, I could uh, clearly see that militarism was a, a worldwide uh, phenomenon and gone back thousands of, of, of years, uh, and, and that it should be uh, combated. Uh, so I, I try to take a, a broader uh, humanistic approach in these movements and to uh, push these movements toward a, a sharper confrontation with those who I felt were the real foe, uh, the militarists, the, um, the exploiters of workers, uh, the exploiters uh, of women, the, the uh, sexists and, and so on, uh, the, the spoilers of the environment. Uh, and um, hopefully um, uh, draw people uh, together in, into a broad social movement or at least a number of broad social movements that could uh, contest uh, successfully for power. Now, despite, uh, despite not adhering to any particular, but you're not a, you're not an ideologue. You're not an extremist. You're a pragmatist. Um, you still ended up drawing the attention, and I, I found this very striking. You uh, ended up one of the potential targets of the Unabomber uh, because uh, he he saw you for whatever reason as as uh, sort of in opposition to his worldview. Uh, yes. That was very strange, really. Um, 
uh, I, I've become a, uh, a leading writer, maybe the leading writer, on the uh, campaign for nuclear disarmament, the uh, broad movement uh, to roll back the nuclear arms race and create a nuclear weapons-free world. Uh, in fact, I've written uh, several prize-winning books uh, on that subject. Uh, and uh, occasionally I would be phoned by journalists who would ask me uh, for my views on uh, anti-nuclear demonstrations or on um, uh, broader questions that had to do with the nuclear arms race. Uh, and one time I was called by a, a journalist for the uh, San Francisco Examiner and asked about the Unabombers, since the Unabomber was a, a uh, critic uh, of, of, of modern science, and I was, of course, dealing with other kinds of, of critics of modern science, those who were, uh, who were critics of the nuclear arms race. Uh, and I, in, in, in my conversation with that journalist, I made a distinction uh, between um, the uh, critique that uh, nuclear disarmament made of, uh, of the nuclear arms race and the much more hostile view that the Unabombers seem to have of modern science and technology. Um, therefore, I, I wasn't totally surprised when, after a um, a, after a fellow named uh, Theodore uh, Kaczynski was arrested as the Unabomber, um, the FBI contacted me and asked me, um, uh, "Why did I think that this fellow uh, Kaczynski, uh, who they were pretty sure it was the Unabomber, uh, had my name and address in his?" Uh, his little book, <laughs> and I, I at first I didn't know, but but I quickly figured it, it, it out uh, that of course he was looking at uh, at um, mass media stories that would uh, feature him, and I had been one of his uh, critics, uh, and therefore I was I was probably being targeted for a future bomb. Uh, and the FBI warned me to be on the lookout for, for packages that, that might uh, still arrive since he might have mailed it in the past. And I did so, uh, but then um, uh, no bomb ever reached me. Now, this is perhaps a poor transition, but I, I thought maybe it would be a good, uh, this is a good chance to talk about um, your, one of your major works, uh, the trilogy. Um, the struggle against the bomb. Um, if maybe you could talk about the inception of the work and, and how it was received at first. And it, it's taken a while for it to sort of been uh, to be sort of uh, taken up uh, by the, the sort of academic community. But eventually, it has gained quite a bit of momentum. Oh, oh yes. Uh, well, I, I I began it um, in the, in the midst of the great anti-nuclear campaign of the 1980s, the the uh, campaign against Reagan and Thatcher and and Brezhnev and their their talk uh, of nuclear war and their nuclear arms buildups at at the time. Uh, and um, uh, I had studied peace movement, but it, this was natural for me in, in, in many ways. This, this mass movement that had, had turned out um, uh, more people in, in demonstrations than any, uh, as far as I could tell, than any uh, previous social movement. Uh, a million people, for example, in New York City's uh, Central Park in June of 1982. Um, 
So uh, I, I wrote on this movement, but I, I began it with the assumption that the movement had failed, since at that point uh, the movement did seem to have failed. There was no, no progress toward, toward uh, rolling back the nuclear arms race, and these major figures were, were still snarling at one another uh, and leading us toward, toward nuclear war. But as I dug into the files of the uh, various governments, uh, the one secret files uh, of the the um, White House and of the the um, uh, the uh, National Security Council and the uh, Secretary of State and the uh, British Foreign Office and the Central Committee of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, what I found was that these governments were very worried uh, about these anti-nuclear campaigns and had trimmed their sales. They had backed off from nuclear war. and uh, uh, they had, had backed off from the nuclear arms race at, at key points. And, and indeed, they soon would again. That is, uh, 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 Reagan and uh, Gorbachev uh, soon moved to uh, talking about a nuclear-free world, uh, a, a total turnabout for Reagan, certainly. Uh, and um, uh, so when the book finally came out, I, I had some very uh, dramatic evidence of not just the massive nature of the movement, but also its, its efficacy in transforming uh, the, the foreign policy of the nuclear powers and in uh, preventing non-nuclear powers from developing nuclear weapons. And in your work on this, uh, on that trilogy, in fact, brought you back to Japan eventually. You were, you were invited back to, to speak on the topic of, of nuclear disarmament, um, and while they're also engaged in, in some political activity as well. Um, yes, yes. Um, I've been to uh, Japan a number of times. One of the times was uh, to go back there in uh, 2004 to uh, deliver some academic lectures, uh, including one at uh, Hiroshima City University, uh, where the the panel of us, uh, the uh, and the lecturers, uh, were in, invited to the mayor's mansion, where we were wined and dined, and we had we had champagne out in the the, the garden served by uh, liveried waiters. Uh, but um, uh, I combined that, as usual, with uh, political activism too. Um, so that um, uh, I was asked by um, Gen Suiken, the uh, Japan Congress Against Atomic and Hydrogen Bombs, to um, uh, give uh, some lectures uh, for that anti-nuclear group, um, which I did. And I, I was also asked to to uh, come on out. Well, uh, um, first I, I was asked to, to speak at a, a press conference there that uh, the uh, Japan Congress had, had organized, and I did so talking to, to journalists from from um, uh, newspapers comparable to the New York Times and, uh, and and the Washington Post and so on. Uh, I never get interviewed by them here, uh, but I was there. Uh, and and furthermore, I was rushed from that, that press conference to the annual march through uh, Hiroshima's uh, streets by anti-nuclear demonstrators at the, at the anniversary of the uh, Hiroshima bombing. And I got there, 
our, our, our taxi uh, pulled up to the, the line of marchers, and I said, where do you want me to march? And they, he said, uh, right in front. You're going to be holding the banner. <laughs> so I did go up in front, and I, I took my uh, portion of the banner, and we uh, strode through through uh, Hiroshima streets, uh, uh, thousands of us, uh, with, with uh, a, a sound truck uh, preceding us, with uh, police holding back the, the cheering crowds. Uh, it was a great day. And in fact, I think there is a there's a very nice picture of you in, in the book holding that banner at the, at the front of the, yes. the pride. Yes, yeah. Um, now, before we, I mean, I think we're drawing a bit to a close. But something we haven't talked a lot about is, is sort of the personal side of your your life. And there's a lot of personal detail in your memoir. Um, your family sort of has evolved and 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 gone through some periods of transition uh, all the while while you're advancing through your career and and uh, in, in engaging as a, as a political intellectual? Um, yes. Uh, um, in, in, in general, uh, I had a, a, a fine time uh, as an um, a activist intellectual. But nonetheless, it, it, it definitely put, put strains on my family life. It, it put strains on my uh, job security when I was effectively purged from academia. Uh, although I, I eventually worked myself back into it in, in, in the United States. Uh, and um, um, nonetheless, it, it, it was a very uh, exciting life, too. Wonderful friends uh, along the way in, uh, in uh, social justice groups, in, uh, in uh, civil rights groups, uh, in in my uh, my union, uh, United University uh, Professions, uh, in uh, Peace Action, uh, the nation's largest peace group, um, uh, on which I I well, on, on whose, whose national board I now serve. Uh, so, in in many ways, um, I I enjoyed being an activist intellectual, and despite the the um, family and and uh, job uh, stresses and and strains um, uh, this role provided a good life for me and i only hope it's 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 helped others in 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 some small ways to uh, create a better world all the while again there, there's yet more detail in your book about i, I think your sense of You've, you've you've sort of honed in on and focused in on some very very serious issues in your professional and and your professional career and in your career as an activist, um, but you've also maintained uh, a good sense of humor and a sense of sort of appreciation for for things like music um, uh, as well. Uh, well, I hope so. Uh, uh, most people consider me a very good-humored, uh, even uh, irreverent uh, sort of person, and I think I, I, I am. Uh, probably, if I I, I had more uh, reverence for the uh, established verities, uh, I wouldn't be rebelling against them. Uh, but um, as a historian, especially, I've I've, I've learned that uh, today's uh, respected uh, tradition is is uh, tomorrow. Um, uh, subject for the scrap heap, so that uh, uh, I've 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 tried to keep that in, in mind that, that history is a a study of change over time, and therefore um, one might as well have a, a sense of, of uh, humor uh, about these revered things. Although I guess I revere some things too, uh, but I don't laugh about them quite as much. Um, furthermore. 
um, I found that uh, music um, was not only a way to um, to integrate politics in, in, into a different uh, format, um, but was was very satisfying. I uh, I learned to uh, play guitar along the way uh, and later banjo, and uh, for perhaps the last. 10 or 15 years, I've been performing with a uh, musical group called the Solidarity Singers, and we uh, perform at union picket lines and at uh, peace movement meetings and environmental uh, groups, uh, press conferences, and this sort of thing. Uh, and it, it's a lot of fun for us, really. Uh, and it develops a different side of me, perhaps a different portion of, of my brain, um, that uh, enjoys doing this sort of thing. Uh, and uh, I think reaches people on a different level than uh, intellectual uh, discussions or, for that matter, uh, political harangues. Do you have any other projects uh, in the workings that we should be, that we should be looking out for? Well, uh, I'm now writing a novel, as a matter of fact, and it has to do with the subject of the corporatization of the university and resistance to it. Uh, I think it's uh, it's quite humorous. Uh, it's meant to be uh, satirical. Uh, it's a very different thing than I've uh, I've done in the past. Um, and if any uh, uh, potential publishers are out there who might like to to, to publish a, a satirical novel uh, about university life. Uh, they should feel free to contact me. Well, very good. We'll have to keep, keep our eye out for that. Thank you. Well, Professor Whitner, thank you very much for your time. It's been very interesting uh, speaking with you today. Okay. Thank you very much. This has been Andrew Jaya for New Books and Human Rights, part of the New Books Network. I've been speaking with historian Paul Friedland about his book, Seeing Justice Done, The Age of Spectacular Capital Punishment in France. It will be available via Oxford University Press starting in July 2012. Thanks for listening.